Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. Welcome to today's macro call. We've been saying for between 2020, it, it certainly is a macro year. ACG Analytics macro report comes out every Tuesday morning. Leading the discussion today will be Chris Serwinski, our lead international analyst. A special guest today, Larry McDonald, will provide a unique macro perspective. ACG team, Brian Dean, our lead Latin American analyst. With that, Chris, please take us through. It's been a very, very interesting week. Thanks, David. There's a lot to cover this week, particularly in the United States and then, of course, through the emerging world. So I want to start, though, in in the United States, and we're discussing the next release package, and we touch on it on most of these calls. I think it's important, though, to discuss it every week and what are developments that we're seeing. John, this week we've heard from, for example, Majority Leader McConnell speaking positively about getting an agreement by the end of July. The Senate is on recess until July 20th, and then the House is looking to go on recess July 31st. That leaves us a little bit of a small window, right? Yes. Respective schedules of the House and Senate are not well aligned anymore, so there's only a few legislative days when they're both together. Republicans are using this recess period in the Senate to try to come up with a package, but they are still deciding what's going to be in the package, although we've talked about some of the broad outlines of what's likely to be in it, which includes school funding. And McConnell said yesterday, or his office said yesterday in a call, that for him it's about jobs and kids, making sure that schools can open and making sure that there are are incentives in there to get people back to work. People are talking about another round of stimulus checks. It's unclear at what amount. Other tax incentives and McConnell and other Republicans are really looking at liability protection. Rubio and Collins are looking at things they can do to help small business. So we may have PPP-like programs that target certain sectors, such as the hospitality sector or businesses that have 10 or fewer employees. If there's still a bit of head scratching there because there's $120 billion left in the PPP program, and it's basically the same number has sat there, give or take, you know, about $10 billion for the last three weeks. So we're having an issue with uptake, and that was also mentioned on the call I was on yesterday with McConnell's office. Well, I'll just caution that the House, the White House, Senate are very far apart, and relations between Democrats and Republicans in the Senate and relations between all of the parties are somewhat strained. And so we're getting into election year politics, and it's fast overtaking the ability for lawmakers to pass meaningful things. But I still think we'll get a bill here. Do you think that Mnuchin is going to be the one negotiating this? Because we've heard you know, conflicting reports out there talking about, for example, Mark Meadows leading it. Well, you know, the White House has to make its own decision, but in practical terms, uh, Mnuchin has been negotiating these bills on behalf of the administration and enjoys a good rapport. But David, I mean, if you're if you're looking at the swing states and you're thinking about the political imperatives that Trump has, I know that, for example, the Michigans, the Pennsylvanias, th- these states are going to experience a dramatic upheaval if the unemployment checks the $600 are not extended at the end of July. Do you think that that is partially playing into the White House's rationale for how they're moving forward? Because we have seen a change in the way that they're talking about both stimulus checks and unemployment, although I think it is likely to fall short of that 600. 
Uh, thanks, Chris. There's a consensus, and it applies to Republicans and Democrats, that the extra $600 a, a week is not encouraging people to return to work. Construction workers in New York are, are not returning. Minority leader Schumer has heard this from the New York City community. So I think, this, Chris, there's going to be a compromise there. The Republicans have said publicly and, and privately to myself that they're not going to reinstate the $600. But nevertheless, we have to be recognized the $600 has been successful in a couple of ways. It's propped up the automobile market. It's helped consumers clear up uh, commercial credit histories. So I think there'll be a compromise there. I mean, let's remember the $3 trillion House Heroes Act. The Senate Republicans have gone for, um, we're not in a rush to do a bill. So we're definitely doing a bill. You know, there's always a bit in an ask. We've been told, Senator on the Senate Banking Committee said to me last week, he is willing to give Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats more money for more projects in exchange for liability protections for businesses and nonprofits that reopen. So that possibly takes from the consensus number of $1 trillion to $1.5 trillion. That's exactly the point, right, is that when you look at observers, obviously we have this wide range of $1 to $3 trillion being the number of the next relief package. But these things, in our experience, tend to get bigger rather than smaller. So if $1 trillion is your baseline, you know, considering what you heard from Senate banking and, and everything else that we're seeing, it seems like this thing is going to be bigger rather than smaller. So the odds of, of a market positive higher number are is higher in our perspective at least. Now, David, outside of the relief package itself, we're seeing Vice President Biden and begin to step up his campaign. We've heard now his economic plan that he released yesterday. The optics today, let's talk about that because he's speaking in Scranton. What, what does that mean and you know, how does that play into the Democrats' strategy for picking up more voters? There are two Joe Bidens, right? There's Blue Collar Joe who was from Scranton, Pennsylvania. And then there's Joe Biden, who lives in Delaware and has been in the Senate for 30 years. We'll have to see. It's the job of the Republicans to emphasize his institutional background as part of the swamp, and he's going to try to sell his blue-collar background in Scranton. My analysis of the, the blueprint that he released, it looks very much like it's a straight-up appeal to Trump voters in the blue-collar manufacturing Rust Belt state, and that in many ways, although he criticizes President Trump throughout, he's doubling down on a lot of President Trump's policies. He wants more Buy American. He wants to go after China. He wants to bolster manufacturing. The plan almost could have been put together by the Trump administration. There is another effort underway to get more progressive positions into the Democratic Party platform, and the Biden campaign has been helping those efforts along in, in subtle ways. In, in this is an effort to try to widen Biden's appeal to the progressive wing of the party. Whether what gets put in the Democratic Party platform ever gets enacted, that's a different question. Yes. But it does feel like some centrifugal forces in the Democratic Party would propel a Biden administration to enact pretty bold environmental and, and other progressive positions, a card check, cap and trade even. So I, I see this economic plan as standing somewhat outside of what else is, is pulling a Biden administration. So in a way, it's, I don't want to say unimportant, but in a way, we're still expecting the Democratic Congress, assuming that the Senate flips, to really push the Biden administration in a policy direction, as opposed to Biden laying out what he wants. So I think that that's, that's an important thing to keep an eye on here, and that's obviously why the Senate is so important to us and why we're covering it so closely. Larry, it's tough this far out from the election, but do you think that a Biden win right now is priced into the market? 
hedge fund after hedge fund, portfolio manager after portfolio manager says absolutely not. It's not priced in. I think there's two things going on. Number one, Biden's poll numbers have increased dramatically, but it's just so early that people haven't put on risk positions that are really election centric. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this weak dollar three legs of the dollar stool. We've been pounding the table on this weak dollar trade for the last couple of months, but now it's really picking up steam because if you think about it, we've got this second wave risk that's you know lurking and surging in some spots. We've got a tremendous political incentive to keep spending, you know, absolutely incredible incentive to keep spending. So, you know, that's dollar negative you know, very deficit spending, supportive of gold, silver, and commodities. So it's just very unusual that you'd have this dynamic setting up because of the second wave risk and because of the election. There's this incredible incentive for the administration to put something through and spend even more. I mean, this is after a colossal amount of spending. You know, it, it's just setting up for a real fourth quarter dollar uh, puke or lower. That's assuming a positive European economic recovery and a continued easing of U.S.-China tension and in China's economic recovery. BART has been talking about the fact that a resurgence in virus cases and in hospitalizations is likely in Europe, and there is a threat there to some sort of localized reclosing, if you will, just like we've seen in the United States. I mean, what does that do to your dollar bear case? We're watching that like a hawk. There's two things. Number one, the cases are crucial. But number two, this situation with Italy, and I talked to Farage this morning, Nigel Farage is very close with Salvini's team. So you have this forming of new leadership. And so you don't really have the bid offer in terms of what Italy needs yet in terms of they haven't really put out the numbers in terms of how big the hole is. So that you're right. We probably get that number in late August in terms of how big their hole is. And so the recovery plan right now is a plan without knowing how big the hole in Italy is. So if, if the hole's bigger than people think, say late August when they come clean with the number and there's pushback in the north, if the frugals push back, hard and Italy pushes against them, the euro will go weaker and the dollar will strengthen, even though the U.S. is peddled to the metal with fiscal policy and deficit spending. I guess part of the way to think about that is that you could be heading in the dollar bear case, but then you just see a momentary blip of, of dollar strength there to address some of those growing concerns. You know, I want to move into to EM a little bit, too, and bring in Brian, our chief LATAM analyst here. We saw a very important trip and very interesting trip this week between President Lopez Obrador in, in Mexico and President Trump at the White House yesterday. The meetings, all reports, seem to have gone really well, and Trump seems to have maintained some sort of statesmanlike decorum. Brian, is that what you're hearing from friends close to the administration? Absolutely. You know, the word out of people that were involved indicated that uh, the president was on his most diplomatic behavior. He stuck very closely to the script and really demonstrated a, a degree of respect to AMLO that has uh, resonated very positively. I was going through Mexico's op-ed pages this morning, and the uh, the response seems to be universally positive after AMLO was heavily criticized from left, right, and top to bottom prior to the trip for joining the trip, as it looks like it'll probably turn out to be a net loss for AMLO. Uh, you know, there were no disparaging words exchanged between the two. And given the fact that AMLO has in the past accused Trump of being a neo-fascist and Trump has this, a long history of attacking Mexico, you know, I think that there were possibilities that this thing could have uh, spun out of control. But by all appearances, it went very, very well. Interesting from one perspective, because prior to the trip itself, as you said, the publicity was overwhelmingly negative, right? Saying, why are you going to go 
talk to this guy, Trump, who has been so negative calling us rapists and, and drug dealers, it's pretty obvious that if AMLO is going to go to the United States, that he's going to aim for a positive visit, right? He's not going to go and just pick a fight with Trump in Washington, D.C. So it's interesting to me that the media in Mexico and the opposition parties were sitting there panning the way that AMLO is going about this. And now they've flipped a complete 180 and are very positive on the fact that he was able to maintain ties with such an important commercial partner. It just seems a little bit short-sighted. It makes me wonder about some of their strategy moving forward against AMLO. And it makes me question the effectiveness of these oppositions, the pre and the pond, for example, to address AMLO's policy priorities. Well, you know, I agree with you entirely. I would also add, though, that, you know, there are a lot of issues in the background that were not discussed during the summit, including a litany of trade disputes that the U.S. intends to bring against Mexico, AMLO's efforts to renationalize the energy industry, which have hurt, you know, American companies directly, and, and numerous other issues that are going to have to be resolved. But I think that the tone and tenor of yesterday's meeting suggests a positive start. The absence of Trudeau, you know, may have been beneficial for Trump, but, you know, AMLO certainly would wish that he were there. But I think at the end of the day, this thing turns out to be a net positive. And even if you look at Trump, you know, the, a lot of the discussions concerning the summit on the, on the U.S. side were criticisms that this was going to be nothing but a staged event for the president to engage in election year politics. I didn't see a whole lot of that. And to the extent that it did happen, you know, we're looking at this subset of American voters, maybe as, as Larry pointed out to me early, 20 percent Hispanic voters. This could be an opportunity for Trump to demonstrate some positive remarks toward Hispanic Americans. No Republicans ever won without Florida. Outside of that, too, you mentioned some of these trade disputes that we have, largely in relation to the USMCA and somewhat renationalization of the, the Mexican energy sector. I would point out that the, the optics of this and whoever set up the dinner, for example, was very savvy. They put for example, the CEO of SEMPRA next to Ebrard, who is the foreign secretary for Mexico. And he's largely the one who's going to be talking about the uh, export permits, you know, and some of these cross-border energy investment issues in greater detail, as opposed to AMLO. They're moving in a positive direction. Well, we obviously have seen this week that Bolsonaro has uh, COVID-19. Relatively ironic, considering his cavalier nature towards the virus, calling it a little flu. What's the overall impact of this, Brian, from a political perspective? I mean, he himself seems like he might be okay, but are there, you know, second-tier ramifications? Well, listen, yesterday our close friend and partner in Brazil who runs a think tank was quoted in Bloomberg, and I spoke to him personally, and he thinks that if Bolsonaro works his way through his contagion with the coronavirus, which it appears he is doing with only very minor effects, it's going to validate his argument that coronavirus is exaggerated and that with the proper precautions for people that are vulnerable, Brazil ought to go straight back to work. On the other hand, there was another development yesterday. It turns out, according to reports, that Bolsonaro's wife's grandmother has contracted the coronavirus and they may very well die as a consequence. And that could provide a counter-narrative regarding the potential of contagion healthy people might give to those that are ill. So it might wash out a little bit, but it certainly could serve to validate Bolsonaro's cavalier attitude if everything turns out all right. Yeah, and he's really been a salesman for you know hydroxychloroquine, for example. He's going to pharma after he finishes up in office. I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. 
If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at acg-analytics.com. Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.